I think the future of the teacher is not necessarily to be content specific as it is to teach kids how to learn and and who they are as as students and figure out what their passions are and kind of develop the whole person versus here's your content area math person and I'm going to build your math skills and then you're going to learn all these formulas that you'll never use unless you become an engineer. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. This episode features some amazing educators from the New York City Public Schools. Here they are. My name is Lou Lahana, and I am the tech coordinator at the Island School. I run an educational makerspace. I'm also known as the Techbrarian. You can visit me at techbrarian.com. And uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm Lori Stahl Van Brackle. I'm the Instructional Technology Director for the Manhattan Field Support Center, which is a department of the New York City Department of Education. Uh, it's a mouthful. And before I took that position, I was a, a middle school technology teacher, computer talent teacher. Hi, <laughs> I'm Gianna Villegas. I am the Instructional Technology Coach at PS96 which is a school up in Harlem. Uh, we've rebranded, so we are the School for Arts, Collaboration, and Technology at the Joseph C. Lanzetta campus. So this is the gang for this conversation, among them decades of experience in urban schools and a shared passion for making and learning. Although you'll hear from our conversation that we don't always agree about the way forward as it relates to maker education within the context of schools. And that's what I'm excited to talk about today. On a side note, we're making some progress. Uh, No such thing is nearing 1,500 downloads in 10 different countries. And I am so grateful and uh, thankful for everybody who's listening If you believe in what we're doing, myself and the guests on this show, by surfacing the conversations that we are, um, please, the greatest favor that you can do for us is to rate the show, review it wherever you've downloaded it, and share it out with uh, your friends, your family, and fellow practitioners. Um, Without further ado, on with the show. So um, for educators who listen to the podcast, who, who just are brand new to this thing, um, we're framing this conversation as we, you know, we're talking today about maker education, but I wanted to uh, sort of put as much, um, as, as much sort of tangible flavor to that as possible. So Lou, I was curious to have you talk about a project um, can be very recent, can be from years past. Um, one that really turned you on to the potential of, uh, sort of project centered, um, we'll call it maker education and then unpack from there. Okay. Well, I think it's important to say right from the get go that I believe that educational maker spaces within schools have to be content-based, content-oriented, academically rigorous. So for my students, they start by 
researching. I have a site where I curate high interest links to a variety of social issues because the theme of my makerspace is social action. So they research these social issues and then they fall in love with one of them and they research it deeper and then begin to think up product ideas to address the problem, either to raise awareness or help solve it. So a memorable project was Peter. Uh, his father is a cigarette smoker, and he wanted to figure out a way to shame him into not smoking so much. So he used um, solar electronics. He used an Arduino and then a carbon monoxide sensor, and he uh, sewed it onto a shirt. And then whenever it sensed smoke, an LED would light up next to the words stinky breath, yellow teeth, lung cancer. And uh, it was fully functional. And, yeah. Yeah. This was sewed onto his jacket? He made, he custom made shirts. Um, uh, and yeah, it worked. That's pretty extraordinary. And what was the, what was, what was the exciting learning outcome for you watching the process um, that's different from having tried to get to that level of engagement? through other practices. Yeah. I think it's the idea of marrying low-tech and high-tech. It's where you come from a problem place rather than trying to create cool things or opening up a black box or some novel item, where you have it anchored in something where the student really has a passion or an interest about an issue. And they've done some research, so they're not just someone off the street with that kind of knowledge, where they really delve deeply into it. And once they understand that, they look at what else is out there addressing the problem. In his case, there was nothing quite like that. And so in doing that, he used low-tech skills like sewing and uh, we created stencils for him to write those words. We used a cricket to cut out those letters, and then um, a, cr a cricket for somebody who doesn't know. Yeah, what it's that an is. it's an electronic cutting device. I use it about six hundred times more than a three D printer in my classroom. <laughs> okay, um, and yeah, being able to marry the low tech with the high tech and having it succeed beautifully like that uh, was very gratifying. For both of us. And and the cricket, so this is dawning on me as we're talking, that I, I think we should just put a price on these things as we sure, talk about sure. them. Sure, sure. The cricket, I think you can get for yeah. under 200 bucks. Yes, you can get it for under $200. There's been several versions of it. Even the oldest version still does the trick. And I use it, I can give you 100 examples of how I use it throughout the semester. Um, for example, Right now, we are doing a whole bunch of social action T-shirts. Mm. And what we do is students create a logo or an icon representing the social issue that they care about. And sometimes they'll include a statistic. So, for example, on domestic violence, they'll create an anti-domestic violence symbol. I'll take a picture of it and then upload it to the Cricut website where you can uh, have it automatically cut out the picture that they make mm -hmm. and then we cut it out you can use a variety of materials and the ones we use are uh, ironable vinyl and I have a t-shirt press and we press it right into the t-shirt awesome so they're able to make social action t-shirts using the cricket how about you guys uh, either Jenna 
projects that you've done with students that really sort of lit the flame for you about the potential of maker ed um, or Lori things you've seen over the years, either as a trainer or um, as an educator yourself? Well, I come from making from a personal place where I was always a maker. It was what centered me um, as a human being. And when I had children, I had a box of craft stuff. As Before I had children, I had a box of craft stuff. Um, making was just always a part of what you do to express yourself. And it was a joy for me always. And when... I became an educator. I brought that with me. Um, I, I had taught English before I taught computers, and we made masks when we did Lord of the Flies, and we made um, logos, or not logos, we made a coat of arms when we did Romeo and Juliet and competing coat of arms, and we did all of that. And then when I got into the computer lab, um, if I wasn't keeping my kids engaged making, then I was going to be dead. So I was making movies, we were making games, we were making everything, um, but it was all plugged in. So they were they were hyper engaged and, and you can use that carrot of, oh, you know, you finish your project, you can play games. But I was always of the opinion that we're not playing games, we're making games. Mm. Um, you come in here to make. Um, my my classroom was too small to do a lot of um real making like the way Lou did it um, does it still and I, I I really envy the freedom that you, you give your students um, I was always sort of like we had a small space we had limited accessibility to things so we just kind of kept it on the on your desk um, mm -hmm. as, as far as you could go. You couldn't get up and move around my room. It was too small. Um, but in that space, what they could make was anything, um, anything their imagination uh, could come up with. And I wanted, again, to bring that to other schools and other classes and other places um, when, when I told my student that I was thinking of leaving the classroom because you can't leave. Where would you go? And I said, well, I'm going to go teach teachers. And oh, okay. That, that, that's okay. You can they go do it. that. Yeah. For it. that, I could go. But yeah, I couldn't go get a job at Microsoft. That would have been ridiculous. But when I started working with educators, um, they became my students. I miss my kids. I miss working with kids a lot. Um, but I have this cohort of educators now that I get to do exactly what I do with my kids, which is not much, um, but sort of, you know, encourage, you know, go here, why don't you try this and then stand back and see what happens. Because as an educator, I can teach you the tool. I can teach you how to use the tool. I can teach you how to consider using the tool. Um, but if I'm showing you step by step, I'm not teaching you anything. Um, if I just show you how to use the tool and then give you a challenge and see how you use the tool to meet that challenge, then you're learning the tool better than I could ever teach you. Um, so we did last year, we had a makeathons, which was my first foray out of my classroom into other schools where we were trying to make connections uh, with educators and communities and building a big event. It was awesome. Mm. And that's how I got Gianna on board um, to, to be like, okay, I'm going to stand back and let you do it because I don't have kids. That sounds dreamy. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be great. Gianna, how about you? My take. Um, actually, last year was... The first time I identified as a maker, even though I, after like kind of reflecting, I've been making for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent um, years in, as a math teacher and years as a robotics coach. And I'm like, 
oh, wait a minute, this is making, you know. Um, we often engaged in these Lego challenges, and what I loved about them is that you hyper-focus on, on an issue, and then you kind of, you do a deep dive and you study it, and then you kind of see what solutions are in play, and then the kids are challenged to iterate and do one one up a one up or make it better or come up with something brand new and that was something that I enjoyed and that was something that we kind of came through when we started to teach kids this whole make-a-thon uh, challenge of putting together the paper roller coaster with the makey makey sensor and, and the scratch coating um, every time we kind of went through these events it just got better mm. You know, and it's not because we taught it any differently. It's just because you had people kind of, um, kind of with fidelity, kind of use those those skills and put their thinker hats on. There was a lot of empathy in the room. They were listening to one another, and those soft skills that are not taught traditionally anywhere except for you know at home, quote unquote. They were in play, and they, they were listening to one another. They were taking each other's advice. Mm. There was no there were there was no naysayers, right? No negative Nancys. It was just like uh, think big. And then we'll we'll test it out, and if it fails, we'll see why, and then we'll figure it out. You know, can it work? We'll try it again, and if not, then let's start over. And just the willingness for the participants at all grade levels, because we went from like we started with middle school, then we did elementary, elementary, we did the high school, high school and then we did the teachers. like the teachers college, Hunter, yeah. Hunter no, yeah. Hunter College uh, crew, and it it was. It just got better and better every time. And then mm. we had our our last event, which was the collection of all the roller coasters running, uh, being connected. So that's its own new, <laughs> own new challenge, right? So you're connecting uh, the roller coaster to a Rube Goldberg that then delivers the marble to another roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And then it's supposed to be one continuous play on this marble. So it's that problem solving was so fun. And kids were hyper engaged. They took no breaks. None. Yeah, none. We had to force them to go eat, which is rare when there's pizza involved. <laughs> they usually smell it and they go to the food source. Right. And they're like, they took the pizza with them they, back. They, right. they, they, they engaged in a working lunch, which is something that you wow. say that to kids and they're like, why would you work while you're eating lunch? Like, no. Right. So that was fun. And it, that was true in all of the events, I yeah. think. Yeah. We offered pizza and they, they took it and they kept working through. You, you but, said... Um, coming back, there are a couple things you said that I want to come back to, but one of them was about um, it not be, you had a frame in time where you were like, that's when I really considered my, started considering myself a maker. What was that e event? That was actually, Lori, I blame you for this. Um, so I didn't know what maker was. I didn't know what maker ed was. Um, and she invited me to the maker. Makeathon. No, no, the Maker Fair. The, the Maker Fair, the, the, ed the forum. educators forum. Right. Okay. And they're and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I'm gonna learn some stuff, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like total nerd at heart. So I'm like, this is gonna be a great day. Mm -hmm. I'm learning something new, figure this out. How can I become a maker? Um and then as people are presenting, I'm like, Oh, well I've done that. Well I've done that too. They're like, you know, you teach kids about design. I'm like, Oh, I've done that. You teach kids logic and critical thinking and coding and problem solving and I'm like Oh, I did that. I did all mm. of that as a math teacher. Yeah. I didn't see myself as a maker because I, I'm not a, not a craft person. 
I've become one. Mm-hmm. Um, I took up cross stitching this summer. It's awesome. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. I'm like, oh, I was already doing these things. I just didn't realize that it's connected to what people are calling maker ed. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, that's semantics. And I feel like that's maybe it's rebranding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like where teachers kind of panic when I talk about maker ed. They're, they feel like there's this big gap and how do we cross it and we have to meet this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you're already making with your students, especially elementary school teachers. That's just the natural workflow. Right. Mm-hmm. right. 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 You give kids like three materials, go make something, and the kids just make Dude. something, yeah. right? They get fewer instructions, and you get different um, different takes on it with the same materials, which yeah. is fun. Mm. Yeah. And they lose that in middle school somehow. They just, they, they kind of, they want perfection. They want it to look the way they imagine it. Whereas when they're in elementary school, it seems they just imagine as they're making. They imagine as they're making. And I feel like as you, as they get older, because of the structures in play and the standardizing, they feel like it needs to look at a, cer- a certain way. So they try to standardize their thought process. Oh, it should look like this, or mm. it should fit within the confines of this paper instead of like going beyond that. So coming back to, uh, to something that you said, you, you're playing great. You're Captain Segway. Is, is <laughs> my, my next because my next question is: So is this something new, uh, or is it a rebranding? Um, and then I have more questions from there. But but uh, Lou, is maker education something new? Yeah, it is, and I know that's a controversial stance, but I do think it's new only in that. It does combine high-tech with low-tech in a way that hasn't been done before. Uh, There has been shop in the past. There's been the art studio model, which is very similar to maker, the maker model in some ways where you have the teacher present and then the kids are independently working and you take a moment to critique it and show exemplars. And then you have some sort of public exhibition where it goes outside. And so there's elements of that. There's elements of the low-tech shop and with some high-tech parts. But bringing them together, I think, is is new. Um, bringing the, the low-tech and the high-tech together. And in education, I think it's very new. And I don't think it's yet happening in a way that is really sustainable um, within the regular school day. I think as an after-school activity, it certainly is. As uh, extracurricular activities, uh, it is. But within schools, we s- just from what I see, it hasn't found its place yet. We are trying to do that, I think, as a community. And I think Lori's been really helping with that process. But I think we haven't found a way to do it without diluting it or completely transforming it into something that is not. Uh, maker ed any longer. What is what does the diluted version look like? When everyone is doing the same maker activity, so if everyone is doing scratch or everyone is building the roller coaster, it's not the purest form in my in my mm-hmm. my uh, sense of it. I think people there has to be tremendous differentiation, um, and there has to be a connection with the core uh, subject areas. You have to come from a place where you're not just integrating STEAM, but having a teacher come in and use the makerspace in the way that an uh, open access school library would be used, where you're coming in, you've collaborated with the makerspace teacher, thinking up what kind of projects that you would like your students to create 
and address a certain area of the curriculum, and then they have access to the tools and materials that they wouldn't ordinarily have within the classroom. And I think that's sort of where I envision the makerspace model within schools happening. But to have it completely disconnected from school curriculum, uh, to me, is, is moving it in the wrong direction. I agree. I agree as well. Everybody agrees. Yeah, yeah that's so, unanimous there. So um, you, I just want to come back to you said tie into core subjects. Yeah. Uh, for informal educators who don't speak in core subjects, sure. you're talking about? I'm talking about math, science, um, and social studies and English language arts. Okay. Certainly there's the word STEAM that always comes up, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And everyone talks about it in terms of infusion and inspired by elements of. But I don't think it's the same when you're doing a maker activity for the fun of it and then you find ways to connect it to engineering ideas or math ideas. I don't think that really that's where it belongs in school. I think you need to have a math area where you want to cover as a teacher geometric shapes. And then you bring that to the maker space uh, coordinator or teacher, and you say, I'd like to cover this. Can we think of multiple ways to cover this? Can we cover World War II in multiple ways? Sure, we can have 3D printed characters, and you can have a frame-by-frame animation. We can, you know, create an action game where, you know, we'll use a CNC machine to carve out a board and pieces, and we'll research um, different events, and we can have cards where they pull up and have mm-hmm. different actions they can do. That kind of thing where you're doing multiple forms of representing a particular content area. I have a question just in regards to, I, I, I love all those ideas, but where I'm coming from now, I'm thinking about the tools. Um, yes, it's more maker space when you're like, this is the idea, this is the challenge, pick your tool and figure it out. Make something happen, make something that addresses this issue. But you first have to teach the kids how to use the tool. How do you teach them that Great first? Question. Great question. I think that it's an art, right? It's an art to be able to run and facilitate a maker space, something that someone in an administrative position like you who's who's creating makerspace coordinators basically is what I see your role in is is facilitating encouraging um, teachers to become that and I think as part of that you you do do a mini lesson in the beginning and for for me what I do is I sort of divide it because my chosen uh, content areas is social action social issues I'll do a Uh, mini lesson on a particular social issue and then show them where to get more resources on it. And then I'll do a, I'll model a maker skill or I'll show them how I would, right now we're dealing with uh, plastic pollution. So I gave them the idea of, well, how about creating a product? For instance, here's how to make toothpaste. Here's how to make uh, shopping bags out of t-shirts. And then I showed them how to do that, and then I said, okay, well, what do you guys think? What are some other ideas? And then they begin shooting ideas. Okay, well, I will, just like we did with the T-shirts, I want to print something onto that T-shirt. Okay, well, we have to think of some um, icons that represent this issue. Why don't you research it more? Right, so you do the, everybody's doing pretty much the same project initially. 
right, to teach the tool. Except for the fact that the whole year long, I'm introducing new social issues right. and near, new tools. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to have 25 people working on the plastic issue. You're going to have two people working on that, and one on sex education, and one on banning guns, and one, you know. So you have this set of permutations where there's there's three people who are working on Scratch, but for three different reasons. There are people who are doing Arduino, but for different social issues. So you have all these different combinations, and there can be ways that I can facilitate both. Right. The Arduino for two different social issues. Um, but no, I want there to be as much diversity as possible. And there's the whole thing with just-in-time learning. I can give them just enough right. skills to get started, and then as they're struggling and they need some scaffolding, then I'll be there for them. Right. What, is, what is just-in-time learning? So just-in-time learning is, so there's just-in-case learning and just-in-time learning. <laughs> just-in-case is I'm going to teach you everything under the sun about the civil rights movement. Um, maybe perhaps it's going to be relevant to you at some point. Just-in-time learning is, oh, you're doing something on Black Lives Matter right now, and you're struggling to figure out what you should write in your hip-hop song. Well, maybe you should look at Eric Garner right now. Go research Eric Garner. Mm -hmm. And so that's just-in-time. It's when they needed it, what they needed, and gave them some scaffolding to find out more. Yeah. I feel like there's something sort of simpatico about learning to become a maker of things and uh, what you just described as just-in-time learning of other other subject areas. And what I mean by that is everything I've learned to make over time, um, I have talked in previous episodes about my grandfather's workshop, which was really uh, important to me. Uh, I have a friend who's a carpenter now who has taught me a ton about, uh, but it, it's always in the context of a project and it's always in the context of a thing I need to do better, more efficiently, um, et cetera. So, um, so that's just striking to me that uh, those two things seem so closely tied. Yeah, I mean, there's the old adage like you don't learn how to use a hammer; you learn how to make a cabinet. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, one of the things that was consistent about all of the examples um, was were issues, right? Uh, Lou, you sort of suggested that issues were um, in the matrix uh, as we're defining what is maker education. Uh, issues seem really core to your definition. Um, would you guys agree that that issues are at the core and and that those need to be as a maker educator? If um, well, let me let me stop there because I have some examples um, I want to talk about that I I want to know whether we consider these maker education or not. I think it depends on how you're introducing making to your um, students. So if you're introducing it in the context of this is a makerspace and we're going to teach making, you can do it apart from an issue. You don't have to make it connected to a social social issue. Mm -hmm. But I think the more powerful way to reach kids and get them engaged 
in making is when they're it's it's solutions oriented problem solving so in that way if you're taking that route then it has to be connected to some problem of practice or social issue or something that they want to fix in the world Mm -hmm. um, or something that they want to fix for themselves right Um, and if if there is no connection then it's not going to be continuous outside of that block that you just taught them that skill. Mm-hmm. So where where does for for those who are unfamiliar, Rube, Rube Goldberg machine is? Uh, let me see if I can do this. A Rube Goldberg machine is uh, a device that does a thing that is not necessarily practical in the world. So anyone, I'll, I'll date myself uh, and say anyone who's seen the beginning of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the movie, uh, it's filled with Rube Goldberg machines at the beginning. Uh, there's like uh, things that put his shoes on his feet and put the egg on the grill and all sort of efficiencies that are not necessarily necessary other than the sort of elegance of having a mechanical solution. I think that was decent. Yeah. Um, so where does that fit in? Like the the activity when you walk into a school and they're like, oh, we're totally into maker education. Check out this Rube Goldberg project. I think it's insidious. I think that all those kinds of projects are fun and enjoyable and interesting to many kids, not all kids. And I think, though, it robs the power of maker ed. Um because the challenge for teachers, for educators, is to connect content area studies with maker skills and maker activities. And when you start with something that's just fun like that, it's basically like feeding the kids candy. You leave empty. Um, It's fulfilling and engaging at the moment, but there's not too much to go on afterwards. And sure, you could pull out some physics out of it and some math and find other connections, but you're really doing it the opposite way as it should be. It's against the green. In, in what? Oh, say more in, about that. In, in that you should find, you should be a physics teacher and a math teacher who wishes to instill these, you know, ideas and these concepts and these theories and these formulas, and then from that point. Ask the maker teacher, the makerspace teacher, will you help us create these Rube Goldberg machines that uh, display and involve the following theoretical formulas or ideas or concepts? Mm. So that's interesting. So if um, I would guess that you would agree and stop me if you don't, uh, that the activity of creating a Rube Goldberg machine for a student who's never done something like that is an important building block in developing an identity um, that's going to be necessary in lots that they do in the context of, of making things. So, so my question is, um, but it, it feels like what you're saying is that the the goals there are just out of sync with what school's goals are. Well said. And so whose job is that? After school. After school. Hmm. Um, I'm going to say no. Lori, disagree. I disagree vehemently. (laughs) Um, I think that if, if we can incorporate it into other curriculum, I, I, I believe that maker education 
not in the the classic sense um, and in the the more uh, creative sense where a student can pick any tool they want and solve a, a particular project problem the way they want to um, that's an ideal that not every classroom can aspire to um, not to say that you can't have some flexibility and some creative uh, arc in other classes but if you're in an English language class for example and you have the challenge of you want to turn the page and you want to bring your physics teacher in and you're you're working together you're trying to create something that's going to bridge both subject areas then a Rube Goldberg might be the right tool the right project rather um, the tools that they're going to use are going to be different the the ways they're approaching it are going to be different um, the the challenges the same the goal might be the same but everything else will be different and in that I think you develop the the maker mindset it's when you have a, an open maker space that you're able to then say okay let's bring this challenge to a higher level but that introduction of, of making um, in any curriculum can't can be uh, a doorway um, to that more creative and that more ex not exclusive, inclusive, not inclusive, um, broader approach mm -hmm. um, that that will allow them to take a look at something and, and consider it as some object that they can use in a different way. And I think for well, Rube Goldberg's is the example that when a student looks at a block who's made of Rube Goldberg, they're not going to look at it the same way ever again. Um, they're not going to look at dominoes the same way ever again. They're going to think about what they can do with them in different ways. So if the goal is to have a different mindset, I mean, if your goal is to teach math and you're teaching, you know, the, the velocity of speed and you're teaching, you know, all the physical stuff um, that that a Rube Goldberg can teach, and I'm mumbling. Sorry, Rube Goldberg it's can a hard, teach. It's a mouthful. Yes, um, you should teach that part first, and then introduce the Rube Goldberg. Um, but I, I like to hook my kids. Um, I like to hook people, and then knowing what I want out of it, right? You you know that you want to teach the, the mindset. You want to teach the, the math. You want to teach the physics. You know that these are the things you want to teach, but you, you have to hook them. You have to have them have those quick successes. I, I brought paper roller coasters to a school, a middle school in um, New Design Middle School, and um, it was not well done by me because I was doing it once a week and it was they were treating me like a sub mm. and it was okay because I was like a sub they they threw me in and there was no other teacher and they were just it was not right I mm -hmm. did not go this is what math is this is what arcs are this is the angles I started that and they were not responding so I brought in some marbles I brought in some paper I brought in some books and I said let's play with the trajectory. Let's see what happens when you put the angle up or down. Mm -hmm. And they started doing that, and they couldn't stop. They were they they moved all the furniture around, and they were trying to see how fast they could get the ball to go. And where and I was just like, yes. Finally, they they responded to what I was trying to show them, and it was because they had that 
instant success. When I had to give them the build to, to build up their paper roller coaster, that became strenuous and hard, and I didn't think they enjoyed it. And, and I was like, we're just going to get through it. We're going to get through this. Stuck through it for the year. And at the end, I was like, okay, we made our paper roller coasters. Yay. I'll see you guys some other time. Good luck with life. And they're like, you're not coming back. We loved your class. It was the best class ever. And I was like, where was I when that happened? Mm -hmm. I did not see that. But I think it was that one day where it was just those those quick, you know, builds and, and, and them finding out and discovering, maybe it's the just-in-time learning, what happens if that what happens if is is more powerful than me explaining mm. uh, for, for everything. And then the unspoken lesson is like you're bringing in the joy to problem solving instead of it being frustrating and something where they're checking out. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is fun. Oh, it didn't work out, but let me try it again. Mm. Right. And that's something that it's not in any curriculum, but it's at the core of what maker education provides. Mm. Right. You have a space to fail. And it can be fun when it does go wrong because mm -hmm. we can we can think about it and talk about it. Well, why did it go wrong? How come it, the marble didn't go up all the way this time? And then those connections and those conversations that just happen intrinsically when you have a fail. Well, I'm just going to push back for a moment. So we're talking about sustainability and implementation and integration of maker ed, maker spaces into schools. So in order to do that, you really have to think about what you would say to an administrator in trying to convince them to have a makerspace in a school. And if you are taking the approach of uh, creating the roller coasters, sure, you could connect it to math afterwards and find all these principles within it. But if you are, instead are taking a content area addressing that content area from the beginning and starting from that point and then using all of the maker tools for kids to dive deep into an understanding of that subject area you could test the kids and f assess their understanding and what they've learned about that particular content area along with that content specialist the teacher who you're uh, collaborating with and there would be measurable results measurable learning whereas the other model that you're speaking of you would be really trying and struggling to find a direct way to assess student learning and understand student learning in a way that shows academic rigor um I you know we we went to uh, the maker ed camp um, this past weekend, and there was a conversation exactly about assessment um, and how a lot of maker spaces struggle with trying to come up with really appropriate, really good, rigorous assessment. And with all of my projects as an English language uh, educator um, and writer, everything was about reflection and everything was about the design process and everything was about their written um, response to what they did um, and documenting everything that they were doing as they were doing it so that I wasn't coming from math or science. I literally was coming from a, a journalistic sort of background and that's what I wanted to see as an end result from my students. Whatever the project was, it always folded into a website that they designed based on their writing about the experience that they had making this project. It would be about a 
an essay about making games or an essay about making a movie with their script and, and their, their storyboard and all of those things and those pieces put together so that it was an incredibly powerful piece and a, a document that I could easily grade and assess. I can determine from um, their starting point to their end point what, what successes they had, what their, their ideas were initially and how their movie turned out. You know, does it match? Does it Did it work? Um, but that's not necessarily a successor failure, right? That that means, oh, look, he wrote this story where he's going to have this car fly, and he decided not to have the car fly. Instead, it would drive um, down the road and, and, and then up the hill because it was easier for him to film it. Um, that made more sense to him, and it made sense in his decision-making process, which is what I was looking for. So I guess it depends on the angle that you're looking at the the rigor and what you're, you're hoping to get out of it, I wanted to have them thinking about what they were doing. Um, the design, the design process itself is is the goal for was the goal for the the paper roller coasters in my mind. I wasn't teaching math and I wasn't teaching science. I was teaching design. I was teaching them maker mentality. I was teaching them that. Right, and I'm just saying that if we are really truly looking at expanding maker ed. Mm-hmm then we might need to look at it from the perspective of how do we get administrative buy-in. Right. And one way in which to do that is to connect it with the Common Core and connect it directly with what classrooms are trying to get across. Right. Um, Those standards. I mean, and I don't, also don't think that we're always looking to get a maker space in every school. I think that would be a fantastic thing to do, but I think that the likelihood of that is is... Mm-hmm. It's slim. It's but maybe that's because we're taking no. it from the wrong angle. You maybe know, maybe it's the case that people didn't think that there should be school libraries in every school. That the that the public mm-hmm. library was enough, or classroom libraries were enough, or computer labs. Right. Right. So there's the whole addressing larger issues that are beyond maker education. There's like the inequity of funding for schools, right? Absolutely. So we went to a school on Saturday, but they had, you know. Hogwarts. Yeah, they converted their spare carriage house into a makerspace. Oh, so, four makerspaces. For, for their spare carriage house. <laughs> yes. so, you know, and then each room was dedicated to a different component of making. making. Wow. So, so beautiful. Were they, was it was amazing, this school however. for like the Duke family or the... <laughs> it was Friends Central. It's an amazing space, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely wow. beautiful campus. And Friends School has a pretty... That's That's a pretty known uh, school. That's pretty remarkable. It is. And I like I wish every student had an opportunity to go through that makerspace. Mm-hmm. And what but you know, we're in New York City, we can't replicate that, you know, because of our landscape. It's totally different. Yeah. So we have to take the mindset of the maker and like make it work with what we have. So every makerspace is going to be different. Maybe my makerspace is a a tub of tools, you know, that I kind of organize in my fifth grade classroom. Or if I'm in in kindergarten, it, maybe it's a cubby. So it's just you have to tailor it into wherever you are. But I do agree with you. There does have to be threads into um, the content areas and Common Core. But the question is when... When and who is doing the teaching for this skill, right? That's a great question. As an in-class teacher, you, I'm, I'm teaching fifth grade this year for the first time. I'm my license is seven through twelve, so totally out of compliance. But you've got it. You've got. But it, we're doing it, it right? Mm-hmm. So, but in inside the elementary classroom, you're teaching all of 
the content. Right. And I think that there's sort of two ways of looking at maker ed. Um, one is, do we want to figure out how to implement this directly in each classroom? Or do we want a separate maker space? And if we were to have a separate maker space, who would be the coordinator and how would it fit into the schedule? What, That's what, my problem right now. Yeah. So and my answer is both. Yeah. You want you want a maker space that people can go to just like when you have you're in middle school and high school, you have that science lab where they can go and, and do the experiments, but you teach in a classroom setting. So you want the setting to be appropriate for what kind of well, you could also argue, not argue, but you could have elements of both in which you use the makerspace just like you would use a school library. You would take out the resources that were applicable to the set of projects that the students were working on so they could continue it within the classroom. They could borrow the resources. Oh, no, I agree with you. And so we're having a, that's how we're structuring ourselves. We just, we don't have a makerspace yet. We're mm-hmm. going to build one. It's going to launch. Do, do we want makerspaces so, to, to resemble science labs? Yes and no. Here's why I ask. <laughs> In all of your, both as an educator and as a student, was there any time you went into the science lab to do something for yourself? No. Where it was like, oh, man, I'm going to go and... You didn't have freedom. I'm you go wanted to get into there. Turn this to, thing orange. There were so many rules, right? Yeah. So, like, it would be the free-for-all. Like, if we could do the samba party at the school, you would definitely hang out in the, like, chemistry lab and tinker around. Mm-hmm. But that's, like, you know, if you're breaking into a school to do that. I don't know that So that's one. Allowed, that's right? one model that we have. There's a precedent for a separate space that is just about this thing and tying into the common core um, and GSS, hopefully, uh, for science teachers. Um, but I don't think that's that's necessarily... I, I feel like I, I am at least familiar with your ideal. Um, and I also really appreciate how practical um, you're talking about it. But um, but I don't think the science lab is what you want. You want the the sort of studio open people passing in you, and out, what right? You're, what what you're so my t- question sir. is, yeah, how, what's the differentiation and and how do we do that thing instead of the like standalone kind of sterile place that nobody goes unless you're well, Gianna makes a. a a very important point, and it's about equity and what's known as the participation divide. And it's the idea that uh, schools serving high socioeconomic students, uh, they receive a different set of resources than schools serving low socioeconomic students. And the question is, how do we form some sort of equity, but not even just equity, even moving beyond what they can do in these high socioeconomic schools? And you have to be a little bit scrappy, and you have to be there for a while to build the capacity. I mean, I have the most random stuff in my makerspace. We have, you know, worms and <laughs> elimination machine. And ra- Are the worms alive? We eat the worms. It's part oh, good, of one good. of our social issues. We have... Uh, um, I just don't want to know that you're torturing worms because that well, would be horrible. I wouldn't call it torturing, but we definitely <laughs> fry them up and eat them with adobo. At least they get a well, quick death. <laughs> I mean, it's better than eating cow muscles, right? At least, 
hey cows dream we and we eat them yeah whereas these worms and also we're completely detached from what comes to our plate whereas yeah. here yes they are frying them up alive we, but yet they're completely in touch with what they're eating and it's high protein and it's not taking up a lot of water or grass you can dip we, it in chocolate you could dip it in chocolate, but we put a we put adobo on it for the most part. We digress. Oh, oh sorry. Well, no, I, However, I, my point is that yes, in order to have a high functioning makerspace in a school, you have to have a huge range of resources, some of which will never be used, and some of which will always be used. But you never know what you're going to need, and the capacity to do that comes from being in that space for many, many years and building up those resources, especially when you're in a low-income school that's under-resourced. You have to steadily and slowly acquire your resources from janitors that are about to leave and asking them for things. You know, mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. you just have to acquire things. Yeah. Um, are you guys going to use that plywood? Exactly. Your, your off-cuts or... Um, Foam is wonderful. That's right. Cardboard. Um, cardboard. <laughs> cardboard is amazing. Um. <laughs> it's my jam. Lou, you so there was there is so much uh, I want to unpack. Um, I can't believe that we've been chatting for fifty minutes wow. already, nearly. Already? Yeah. Sure. Um, so it, it goes quickly, and, and I want to have all of these conversations. But I do want to come back to this, this issue of uh, materials and space. Um, and before I do, I want to say, Lou, the thing you said earlier uh, is really provocative about um, what maker education in schools uh, can accomplish or, or should be looking to accomplish, and, and maybe what the role of after-school um, or informal spaces, uh, how those two can complement each other. And I, I actually, while part of me pushes against the idea that that the shaping of identity um, isn't doesn't belong in school, and I don't think you necessarily are saying it doesn't belong in school. Um, I think, I mean, completely the opposite. Yeah. I think um, what I am saying is that there's a way to do both. There's a way to have highly engaging, passion-based learning going on. It's just that it's infused with content from the get-go, not mm -hmm. as an attachment afterwards. Yeah. So, let, but let's assume. Am I, is it safe to assume that there's probably not enough time in the school day to be doing all of the things within the makerspace that that need doing in order to shape that identity that is both. Uh, super fired up about the learner learning that they're doing that's tied to the core subjects, plus this, um, you know, the engagement that Laurie you're talking about, the sort of hook and getting them just sort of addicted to that that uh, process and idea and identity that like I am a maker of things and I can solve problems with my hands and my mind. Um, so. I actually, it, it's something to think about whether we would be doing a better job in systems uh, of education if we had clearer roles and said, here's here's what we're going to do in the out-of-school space. Here are the things we're going to do in school and, and really had those conversations more meaningfully. Um, 
the question I, in my mind is, is there a way to scale those meaningful conversations and, and make sure, like, is that more realistic to, to have happen that after school programs and, and makerspaces that are informal and out of school, um, are they going to, can we start having a massive conversation nationally about um, how those things complement one another? Or are we going to continue to sort of duplicate process and be doing uh, sort of both with not enough time in school and both with not enough time in, in out of school? I think we have not established successfully a stronghold in within the the school, within the class classroom, the daily life of a classroom teacher. We have not created makerspaces and maker ed within schools successfully yet, period. So we couldn't even define the role of what after schools should be taken care of when we haven't Fair. even gotten. But, you know, Lori, what is your role in the NYCDOE? My, my role is, is a hodgepodge. Um, I've been very lucky to be given uh, some freedom to develop it the way I want. I wanted to bring making more to the different schools. Um, to get the teachers that didn't realize they were makers or that they were doing maker ed already mm -hmm. um, to sort of open that door for them. And then once once a person realizes that they're a maker, I believe then they start to look at other projects as potential for their students. They want to bring it into the classroom. They mm. want to introduce more tools. And they want to have that freedom. Um, one one of our educators, uh, Amy Sachs, has just opened a makerspace in, in, at PS15, and it is a beautiful space. But during the school day, she doesn't use it in a traditional makerspace sense. In the after school, she does. But in the school day, she's got kindergarten and first grade, then fifth grade, then fourth grade, and they're doing robotics, all of them. They're doing um, art, all of them. They're doing digital uh, stop-motion animation, all of them. And then in the after school, she's got a Tinker Thinker Club, and they come in and they can use all those tools that they learned in the, the course of the day, the students that come for after school. And and she 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 gives them different challenges, and they they made a they made a critter challenge, so they all had choices of what tools they wanted to use. But the teaching of those tools, I think, is essential. It was also an elementary school. This isn't middle school. This is you know, K to five. So teaching a teaching a second grader how to use scissors is I didn't realize such a thing. Um, and apparently, there's just no time. Nobody's learning it in kindergarten anymore because they've mm -hmm. got to learn how to read. Nobody's learning it in first grade because they have to learn how to write. And so in second grade, they're looking at these scissors and going like this. Oh, I'm motioning my hands in a bad way. With two hands. With two hands. Because um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, right, you can't not, see this. Not motioning your hand in a bad way. The other <laughs> the other way. That would be horrible. What I find interesting, though, is that Lori actually has a position within the New York City Department of Education whose mandate is to spread maker ed. And so there sure. already is a mechanism in place to begin standardizing something that doesn't even seem standardizable, yeah. but it is. Mm -hmm. It's an approach that's going to look a hundred different ways in a hundred different schools, but yet there are a set of common principles that we can codify that can represent a academically rigorous makerspace. Um, and and I think that Lori's already doing that, and I think that that sort of answers your uh, one part of your question about how we can begin to have a national conversation about it, and that is to 
appoint people to help us to spread it within schools. And and I think that's what Lori's doing. I think she's doing a great job. Mm. Yay, but I, I think it's more, it's it's the other way around. I'm not appointing anyone. Um, they have to volunteer. I think this no, has to you come. You have been appointed. Oh, appointed. I got appointed. <laughs> I got appointed. Yeah. They, know, but, they right. know it's important. Yeah in New York City and other s- school districts around the country should uh, take note. I think a lot of school districts around the country have. I think we're really far behind the ball on this. Um, I think your model and what you're doing is more common outside of New York than it is New York City because outside of New York, New York State is doing it. I mean, you go upstate, they make everything. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Amazing. amazing. Um, they have, you know, beautiful maker spaces in their, in their buildings or they have a central maker space that the schools, they, they actually ship the kids to once or twice a week um, because they, well, we couldn't build a maker space big enough in, we wouldn't have the space to do it in New York City. But so those are different, you know, issues that they have to deal with because um, they can't afford to put a maker space in one school that would only supply, you know, 500 kids. They need to be able to make a makerspace that, you know, everybody in a 500-mile radius can access, which is, you know, insane. But I, I think that New York City is still the behemoth that it's always been. It's, you know, moving forward. It, we're doing it one-off and, and you having these amazing successes that people can't see. I'm, I'm trying to pry that door open so people can see into your room and see what you're doing and how you're doing it and whether or not Gianna goes in and goes, I'm going to do that and that and that and pulls from what you're doing and, and then applies it to her makerspace or whether she goes in and goes, I can't do it this way. I'm going to do it my way. It's still she's going to see what you're doing doing like Amy you see what Amy's doing we see what people are doing in those spaces and how we can bring them into other schools and I, I do think and I do hope that this gets bigger and bigger and bigger because I think every school should have both makerspace and making in the class and that's an ideal um, and defining it and what it is and what that rigor is and and how you approach it is something that I think each school should sort of be doing because if we're going to come in and say this is what a makerspace is and clunk it down on them it's totally the opposite of what making is they need to make their own makerspace they need to have a vested interest in it they need to have a buy-in they need to have those successes very quickly and they need to they need to the, the educators need to love what they're doing um, and if we if I went in and said let's do it exactly the way Lou does because Lou is successful and Lou is doing it and it's beautiful look at it and it's not going to replicate, um, not not entirely, right? So we can take parts and pieces, just like when you're building anything, you take parts and pieces from what other people have done and you put it together. So that's what the cohort hopefully is going to manage to do. Mm. Yeah, I don't think you can standardize making. I think you have to allow it to look the way it looks. And it will be different and unique in each school because you have different skill sets, from administration all the way down to teachers and students and parents, parent volunteers and grandmas who come in to help out in the classroom. They all come in with their own uh, skill sets that they have in play that they can come in and share and kind of you know, broadcast out. And then we can figure out projects to dump that in I, into. But, yeah, I think it's it's making is in its very nature unique so I disagree with standardizing I think we can come up with terms so that we can have a conversation where we're on the same page 
right? And and we know that when we say making, this this encompasses all of these things, and we know what it is, and we get a clearer grasp. But as far as it is rigorous on its own, and then it does have def- definite threadways into content. But I feel like it's okay if you don't have a separate makerspace. You can have a little, you have you can have an embedded makerspace in your classroom with fifth grade or with seventh grade math or, you know. Yeah, the DeSoto High School, School in fourth grade is doing a genius hour, and she's got a little corner, and it's just all her maker stuff, and then they pull it out one hour a week and make. So um, one of the things I, wanna, I want to – it we're at a place where we're talking about what is – what can we standardize and what can't we standardize about maker education? Um, is it say, would you three call maker education a practice? Define practice. I, as soon as I said, asked that question, all three of you looked in the air uh, <laughs> to the side of your brain that might, might answer this question. Um, well, you define practice. So when, when, People ask, what is maker education? There's one answer, which is it's branding uh, for something that's old. Um, it's a practice. So there is, uh, there's a methodology and a series of, of tools and resources that are specific to uh, this way of doing things. Um, is there another word that you would call it? Like, what is it? Is it a culture? Oh, it's a mindset. It's a, a way of approaching a problem. Um, it, it's it, project-based learning. Um, it's it's a way of teaching practically. Um, so it's hands-on. So if if I am giving a student a math assignment to build a pyramid and certain tools that they can or cannot use, right? Like you may not use pre-made things. Mm-hmm. You must use um, something you created from your own house. It's got to be using recyclable material mm-hmm. um, and you may not use scotch tape. But you can use any other binding, including homemade glue. You may not buy glue. Like you, you can give all sorts of limits to it. But it's it, then they have to do the research. They have to figure out how they're going to do it. They have to problem solve. So it's problem solving in a practical way. I feel like it's a vehicle for teaching all of the the math practices. That's just the math teacher in me, right? Persevering through problem solving, um, justifying your reasoning. Uh, critiquing the thinking of others and being able to understand them. So teaching all of those skills with real-world applications. It's kind of like the live version of content, right? You're mm-hmm. teaching social studies, and but then there's this current events topic mm-hmm. that's impacting everyone in the classroom, many people in the school community, and then now what do we do to kind of address that problem or make it better until we make something yeah. to address it? So that's like kind of like the the layering and the marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. I think I see it as three M's: mind state, materials, and mandate. So the mind state, in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of iterative um, thinking and um, the problem solving mind state the failing forward mind state 
the materials, I think, is part of what makes it different, that you do have the high-tech element. You do have the game design and the robotics and the sewable electronics. That stuff is new. And then the mandate is it's okay for you to take these low-tech tools and use them. It's okay for you to take these high-tech tools and use them. And it's okay for you to use them in your own way to solve your given problem. Mm-hmm. The, these three M's did not just come to you. I swear to God, they did. Did yeah? Use you can use the internet. Are you look for it up. serious? Yeah, I'm a very thoughtful human being. <laughs> All you need to do is pressure me in well, a I, podcasting I knew, studio, and I, I can come that. up with this I stuff. I knew that, but they're beautiful. I love that uh, mind state. Uh, not to be confused with mindset. Did I say mind state? Or you mind did said mind, mind state, state, but yeah. how is that different than mindset? Um, Multiple mindsets are in a mind state. Oh, there you go. There you <laughs> Was go. that a thoughtful Can differentiation I... or no? I like I like that I said that. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. For now, okay. <laughs> uh, materials and mandate. Um, when you first said mandate, I thought you were going to say something very different. Um, but I love what you said. The other one I wasn't going to be so crazy about. Mm, which, well, uh, well I, I, I got the feeling it was about like a school-wide, mm. you know, this mm. is going to be from on high, we are a maker ed um, thing. That would be a mandate to me, but that's not, that, not at all what you meant. Um, I love that. Uh, so as we're, there are two... Um, Two parts at play here that where there's a little friction in between. One is is um, standardizing or scaling, um, which there's got to be a better way. Those two things are kind of hard. Not my favorite words because they can mean everything and nothing. Um, so there's the how about framework. How do we build? That's great. How do we build a framework that is replicable? Um, or at at least a vehicle for um, adoption and then adaptation. And there's plenty of literature on how to create a makerspace. Yeah. But the question is, how do you do so in that unique beast that is a urban school? Yeah. So this this is actually again Captain Segway. You guys are are not surprisingly two steps ahead of me, um, but let's consider the environments that you three have taught in, which um, are urban schools. Um, so if if you had to, I'm going to limit you to three things that make a makerspace in an urban school setting that you wouldn't. If if somebody said, Lori, I need you to come on create a makerspace in our school, as part of your contract, three non-negotiables um, for an urban school that you need to have there in order to really claim it as a makerspace. An educator. Okay. Um, just that I, because that was yeah. the situation I was put in last time. That's great. And and yeah. is it a, a dedicated, dedicated educator yes. to that space? Yes. Needs okay. To be. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, dedicated to that space for at least a segment of time. I, I can understand that you have a limited amount of educators in your building, and maybe you have to do some programming. But yeah, you have to have somebody who's there and part of it, um, and willing to experiment. And you have to give that educator freedom, um, freedom to experiment and and 
fail and design curriculum that will work or won't work um, without the onus of testing. And I understand rigor. Yes, it's got to be part of it. And that the, the educator in that space has to be looking to make sure that there is something uh Produced, there mm-hmm. should be a production of of something that that connects to curriculum, that connects to content. Um, so it has to be probably a master educator. Don't uh, uh, not to say there aren't some educators that come in day one and couldn't do it, but I think the likelihood is less um, just because of the classroom management um, and then um, space. Right. So we have an educator with freedom and space. Educator, mm-hmm. freedom, space. And any constraints you need to put on the space in order to make it a maker space? Can it be a, whatever this is, eight by eight room? Um, if you only want to have a few kids in it, sure. Um, you have. Uh, there's actually another school, Baker, the Baker School. Um, they have a big empty room in their basement that they're going to, um, some somehow make into a maker space. And I said, it is a maker space. Are you an educator? Are you dedicated to this? We have our maker space. Is your principal supporting you? We have our maker space, and all the materials and all the tools, all that stuff will come because you're going to make it happen, mm-hmm. right? That's your job as the educator to make it. And the, te- the the students and the community and the parents they'll make the maker space, mm. but if you you don't have the space and you don't have the teacher and you don't have the freedom, what do you have? Gianna, do you have three things? I do, but I really like Lori's three things. Um, you do need a. You do they need can a be movie. friends of your three they things. Can be of, <laughs> so to add on to Lori's three, I would say you need a system to get materials in play. Um, because making can be free if we find materials to recycle. But at the end of the day, we need materials mm. to come into the space, whether they're recyclable, whether they're brand new, like filament for that 3D printer that nobody so uses. Some pipeline for materials. Pipeline for materials, uh, organizational structure, because making in itself you're producing something so you need space for the materials and also for what's produced where is it going to be housed so organizational structure you mean you mean a system for keeping things for keeping things and for organizing the time for that space i see it as an open space that will be shared with other teachers so not i'll have just, I'm just using my school as, a, as a, an example in my mind. We'll have a dedicated educator, but it's they're not there 100% of mm-hmm. the time. So the space is still available when they're not there. Mm-hmm. So we need a structure in play to know, um, to kind of like when you share out a library uh, cart of computers, you know, use a Google Calendar and everybody knows, oh, I have it. You know, Miss Howe has it for three periods. Miss mm-hmm. Ortiz has it for, you know, Friday's fifth period so that there's everybody knows you know where to get it who has it who had it before you so you can kind of instead of walking to the library to pick it up you know it's right next door to you because your next door neighbor had it um so structures in play for organizing um the use of the space and the materials within and organizing the space within um so that's my second thing and then my third thing is you have to mold the mindset in the building Mm. Um, and I think with that is educating creating a PLC around making so that PLC 
uh, professional learning community so that teachers in the room, it's kind of like professional development for teachers, mm -hmm. and we engage in PLCs in my building for six-week cycles, and we have like something that we focus on, and then we have time to put what we learned, solutions that we've uh, learned or, or read about into practice. We do inter visitations, and then we kind of come back and share out, uh, share successes, glows, grows, and then we kind of iterate and keep the cycle going. Mm -hmm. So I think um, educating and growing the mindset of what making is and what it can be, because I feel like there's makers all over, but they, they haven't identified as such yet. And then once they do, there's excitement, and that kind of builds into learning and building their skills even further. Mm. I want to tell you about Armando rather than answering those three words. You kind of used up your three your, I feel like there was the three answer. M's. Yeah. yeah, your triptych answer is yeah. used. All right, so, so Armando. tell me about Armando yeah. instead. So last year, Armando researched homelessness in New York City. He became very passionate about it. And he was working with our sewing teacher and decided to create a bunch of pillows for the homeless. Then he did a bake sale and he passed around uh, posters, the talking about the homelessness problem in New York, and then he had a bake sale that he raised some money, and then he went around and passed out the pillows along with some blankets that one of our paraprofessionals donated, and the money. And we filmed the whole process, and he just gained an enormous amount from doing it. And then this year, he decided he wanted to make a portable homeless shelter using PVC pipes um, and a tarp. And then he would also hand out some more pillows with that. In order to create all those things, we needed a sewing machine. We needed our sewing teacher to have a place to teach him and carve out the time. And we needed space to mount those PVC pipes. So in order to do that, we needed a relatively large space with certain types of materials in it. So I think that in order to do projects like that, we have another student who is recording a transphobia song. And, and two students right now, uh, this afternoon, who, are, who have researched waste within schools and collected crayons and have been melting them and putting them in silicon shapes to, to create new crayons to pass back out to the classrooms. That kind of variety of topics, that variety of tools and that space needs to be a relatively large space mm -hmm. in order for those things to happen. So you could argue, oh, well, that's just the type of makerspace that you have and all schools shouldn't have that or might not have that. And I would, yeah, I would argue that that is a framework that should be in within a school because I'm not talking about anything super high tech and I'm talking about just a large classroom that can accommodate all of these materials and have the three components that both of you rightly stated. As important, is it as important to have this space and store these materials as it is the spaces that there are storing textbooks? Oh. That's a 
those are totally unrelated, I think. Textbooks versus maker, um, that's knowledge versus creativity. Um, I think textbooks are, a lot of people are pushing them out and, and everything is digitized and it's wonderful. We can just have everything on a computer. But there is something, I'm a English person, English language, that was my major, and I love books. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I, you can't, they, no, don't well, take but, away my books. But, <laughs> so, so I, what I'm, I guess what I'm forcing is a hierarchy in terms of what the value is to the young people who are growing up coming through your schools. Um, oh. Is a room full of textbooks that they may not crack very much more important or oh. or okay. Or is this kind of space more important? And I'm not that uh, this isn't a dig on textbooks because right. uh, whatever the schools are using classrooms to store, even if it's like I know um, a couple of our schools made makerspaces out of classrooms that were essentially just sort of filled with the um, uh, shop classes of yore. So it was yeah. like there were sewing machines in there. There were there was uh, lathes spaces. and woodworking spaces. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, the bright side was they were uh, making a, you know, they were evolving those spaces into something new. But yeah. um, sc schools store all kinds of things. Oh, and sure. and uh, so I guess what I'm what I'm forcing is, is how important what are the stakes? How important is this that schools start to think about um, dedicating a space uh, so that our air quotes, makerspace is not a bunch of Rubbermaid tubs that we pull out a couple times a year or, or a couple times a week, rather. We throw out innovation and transformative education very freely, but a lot of what occurs in the classroom is what has occurred for a hundred years already. And if you really, really want to transform education and you mean it, and you want the United States to actually be ahead and innovate and, you know, be so tired of winning that not not that. But mm -hmm. if if you want that, then then I do believe that makerspaces, educational makerspaces are the ticket. Yeah. So the answer is I would rather have that over the textbooks. We'll get some Kindles and mm -hmm. there you have mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, they can Google it. I mean, they don't need a Kindle. Oh. They can just Google whatever they need to learn. Um, <laughs> what do we need teachers for anyway? They can just Google it. I don't think, well, that's that's the argument too. So what's the future of the teacher? I think the future of the teacher is not necessarily to be content specific as it is to teach kids how to learn and, and who they are as, as students and figure out what their passions are and kind of develop the whole person versus here's your content area, math person, and I'm going to build your math skills. And then you're going to learn all these formulas that you'll never use unless you become an engineer or unless you engage in some kind of project where now you have to use it for that week mm. or that end of unit, you know, thing instead of something more more impactful where you're impacting the world around you and making it better. So, eh. I think the way, the way that you said what you did about um, what a new generation of educators in schools looks like um, is beautifully said. Um, just in terms of, uh, of what the role is and, and where process plays into the role. Um, so 
Uh, I have a hundred conversations spinning off from this conversation that I hope you guys will come back and join me for. Um, it's everything in me not to ask more questions, but we're we're at a really healthy uh, time right now. Um, I want to give you three a chance to plug anything that you want to plug. It could be um, something that you're working on. Lou, I know that you are in the throes of uh, putting uh, papers, academic papers out into the world. Um, it could be stuff like that. It could be resources that you've stumbled on as a maker educator that you want to make sure that others um, have an eye to. You can just plug your Instagram uh, if you want. Um, Gianna, do you have anything you want to I'm going to just humbly ask <laughs> because I'm still in the process of building my makerspace and I just found out that I can't purchase something that was really, I saw so clearly, it was never even a dream. I just saw it physically materialize. I want to do a a focus in my makerspace for food making mm -hmm. and I won't be able to purchase a refrigerator that like... You know, you can get water and ice out of. So mm -hmm. hoping someone out there in the grade wide space would, would be willing to like um, donate a refrigerator um, for that. And my my goal is to teach kids how to make stuff with what's left over. Great. Um, um, do you it. have a, a page or place that you're asking for said fridge that I can link them to? Oh, they can send it to my school building. No, 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 no. I mean, like, do, do you have, I, I know such a thing might Online. might show up on your donors choose page, for example. Or, oh, I don't, or, I don't have one of those. Oh, I need to start. I need maybe. to start with that. Yeah, I just okay. I just found out today that they're not oh. gonna. But I was like, okay. Is is there a? Do you have a Twitter handle or a um, someplace online that? Well, here's here's what I'll do: is anyone who has a refrigerator, <laughs> and it has to have. Have the little water ching thing ching -ching. with, and does it have to have ice or no? Yes, because one of my focuses is smoothie making. Okay, but it doesn't have to. Does it have to like come out of the front of it, or oh, can yeah. it just be like an ice thing? Maker does it inside. need to have the crushed ice mold, oh, or can that. it just be the cubes? That's the dream, right? Yeah. I, I, if I could have both, then yeah. Does it have to We're be stainless big. steel? It doesn't. I'm just kidding. It does I'm not. Just kidding. Uh, it, it should be a whiteboard anyone... surface. <laughs> <laughs> we can write the recipes right on there. You guys will make it into what you what you want it to be. <laughs> from a Finnish standpoint, but anyone who has an extra refrigerator uh, can uh, tag me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser and let yes. me know that you have a fridge for Gianna and uh, I will get it to you. Not physically, <laughs> although I don't mind helping. Uh, I, do I do have a car, but I, but I will the first I will smoothie that's you. made. <laughs> that's for sure. That I will hold you to. Um, Lori, anything you want to Plug uh, while you're here. Sure. Um, I have my Maker Ed cohort, which is for Manhattan schools. So I, I, I feel bad because I'm from Queens. Um, these are the two best boroughs in the city, and I feel bad that I leave out all the others. Um, but I'm now in Manhattan, so our Manhattan Maker Ed cohort um, is looking for high schools um, because we have a lot of elementary and middle schools, um, but we have one, maybe two high schools now. Um, and 
I want we're having this great big event in in May on May nineteenth. It's the Manhattan Makeathon, mm-hmm. in which the schools will have already had a mini makeathon where they're teaching their students a skill or a tool or how to use a material in a specific way, and then the students are then going to be teaching these projects to the participants at the May nineteenth event. Um, this event is meant for multiple reasons. There are multiple entry points, but my my goal, and Lou, I hope you'll help me with this, is to showcase making to educators. Um, I don't want it. It's not a showcase in that the kids are like, look what I made. Mm. It's a showcase to show the learning that happens while you're making. Um, so these are, sh- you know, they're not deep dives. This isn't deep rigor. Um, but it is a, an introduction, hopefully, or a taste of making um, that I want to also have conversations with educators around the city to come um, to the May 19th uh, event, which again is at M- Martin Luther King Martin Luther King High School High School campus. Um, it's behind Lincoln Center. Um, I'll have all sorts of information up around about it, and we're going to have um, we're going to have uh, workshops for educators to you know see and talk about what they've seen, and hopefully think about how they can incorporate what they've seen into their classrooms. So that is the Manhattan Makeathon, May nineteenth, the Martin Luther King campus. Mm. Be there. It sounds awesome. And you have a Twitter handle. I do have a Twitter handle. That's Bring right. it. Bring Laura Stava. L-O-R-I-S-T-A-V-A. Lou. The Techbrarian is my Twitter handle. I would love for people to follow us because it isn't us. It's all of the products that my students create. And we have an Etsy shop, which you can find via our website. So our website is techbrarian.com, T-E-C-H-B-R-A-R-I-A-N, like librarian, but techbrarian. Mm -hmm. Um, Tech like? Tech is in uh, tectonics. (laughs) (laughs) Because we are shaking things Oh, I love that. Right? Just with the three M's alone, we do that. (laughs) All right? That's how we roll. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, but yeah, you can see, you can listen to our songs that we create. You can buy the T-shirts we make. Uh, we make soap with 3D messages embedded in them. Mm. Uh, there's all kinds of really great things that you can find. Awesome. Uh, next conversation we have, can we have Armando here? 100%. Yeah, would he be up for he it? He would totally be up to it. He's uh, he's just a wonderful kid, so he'd yeah. love to do it. So, yeah, I... Um, I paused about whether or not we need to have young people in this conversation. I thought it was a good place to start to have uh, three educators who know schools well um, to get some of the, uh, the the high-level conversation out of the way. But the next one I want to have is with some young people in the room to talk about, um, you know, are the outcomes that, that we're intending the outcomes? And, and uh, how do they see what, what this means for learning and education. Um, I want to plug a few things. Uh, First, um, one of the things that I'm asking folks to do uh, new in the show is uh, I would love for people to talk back to the episodes. If you are hearing stuff in what you're listening and you want to weigh in on anything you heard and and keep the conversation going. What about um, the uh, free Pixel? Is that still happening? There is still a free Google Pixel to be had. 
what you have to do is go review and rate the podcast. Thanks, Lou. Uh, that was not planted. And you, <laughs> you have to tweet at me with with uh, the hashtag No Such Thing Podcast. But even if you don't want to do that, uh, if you heard anything in this episode that you want to talk back to and continue the conversation, I'd be happy uh, to keep it going and use the hashtag No Such Thing Podcast. Um, for New York schools, spring is Emoticon NYC. This is uh, New York's biggest showcase for uh, youth digital media and technology, especially with social purpose. Um, I hope you will take a look at emoticon.org. This is a, an event that is near and dear to my heart. Um, and then the only other thing that I want to plug quickly is uh, we didn't get to talk about it in the context of our conversation, but Google Groups is, um, there are a few uh, great Google Groups, K-12, Fab Labs and Makerspaces, uh, FabLearn K-12, I think is another one. I have found those communities to be tremendous resources, whether you are a lurker or you just have a really specific question, I'm thinking about buying this particular particular uh, cricket um, model. Can anybody chime in? It tends to be a very thoughtful group. Um, you don't get a lot of noise. And I believe that the group, um, uh, some of the constraints for the group is that they're, they're, they don't allow outside, you know, like there's no sellers on in the groups. There's no uh, any of that. So it's just educators talking to educators. And, and uh, that's been a tremendous resource. You three are very busy people, and um, I can't thank you enough for having this conversation with me. We've we've talked some about making and learning uh, in the show. Uh, to date, it's been from the informal side, and I'm excited that we're now talking more about all of the dimensions of what this can mean and hopefully more conversation to come about um, how we start to put those things together in ways that are um, a more organized system. Because um, I, uh, you know, full full disclosure, in case it's not clear by now, I believe in this stuff very, very deeply. And, um, and I do think that there is a ticket to reaching some of the hardest to reach and uh, and young people with the least access right now. And I think that this identity, uh, this sort of uh, identity of being able to to make things as solutions to problems and put things into the world is is one of the highest stakes things that we as educators can be doing right now when you look at the kinds of problems that this generation is facing. So um, thank you guys for having this conversation with me and promise me that you will come back for more. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> For more info about how you can sponsor No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and young man who I beat in a slam dunk contest in 2004. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. 
The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you. And our show notes can be found at nosuchthing.wordpress.com.